0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the new College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH.
2: This talk has got this rather wonderfully uh, modest title of truth and the universe. Ambition is nothing.
1: Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas.
2: We're going to, as I say, simply think about what science can do, what kind of knowledge it is, what kind of meanings it can give to the world and what kinds of
1: meanings perhaps it can't give to the world. So this week on Philosophy for Our Times, we're taking the philosophical lens to the realm of science. Scientists are, after all, human, and like all of us, they're limited by circumstance, by language, by culture, and yet science is seen to uncover universal truths quite removed from these human fallibilities. So we're asking, which one is it? Is science just another form of human description or does it have a special claim to providing us with the eternal truths of the universe? Author of Conjoining the Universe, Peter Atkins, Harvard historian of science, Sophie Ruth, and Cambridge philosopher and author of The Meaning of Science, Tim Lewins, debate this question for you. As ever, we love to hear from you here at the Institute of Art and Ideas, so please do get in touch, give us a rating, tell everyone you know about the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so please do subscribe there to make sure you never miss an episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Back now to Philip Dodd, who hosts this week's debate for me.
2: Let's begin with Joanna's three minutes.
3: Thank you. Um, So the question I was given as part of this debate is, is science just a human description of the world limited by language, culture, and our own particular circumstances? So I'm going to use that just to foreground a few ideas, and then, of course, we'll debate. And of course, if you're going to answer this question scientifically, then you'd need an experiment. You know, this is how we do, you know, how scientists, some prove theories. And you'd need to take one scientist and put her or him in a particular society, a particular culture, teach them a particular language, and see what sort of theories they produced. And then you'd need to take the same scientist, go back in time, or clone them, but keep all the variables the same apart from society, language, culture, and see what other theories they produced. And that would be the scientific empirical test of that question. So alas, I have no time machine and I can't clone my colleagues on this panel. And so we can't do that. The other possible answer would be through omniscience. We could become deities and stand above everything and distinguish categorically and for all time what is truth and what is culture and influence and assumption. But you'd need to be eternal and omniscient, so we can't do that either. So instead, I'm the stray novelist on the panel. I'm gonna tell you a story about a novel which is the 1928 novel by Radcliffe Hall, The Well of Loneliness. Um, This novel was published, it reveals love between women, it's sympathetic about passion, it even includes a reference to women spending the night together as the lights go out. And this immediately attracted the opprobrium of the establishment at the time, and... um, Sir Archibald Bodkin, the Director of Public Prosecutions, wonderful name, decided it must be banned immediately. And he decided to find some gentlemen, I emphasize gentlemen, of undoubted knowledge to create a scientific argument against the book. He wanted somebody to say that it was a very bad thing scientifically. And so Sir William Henry Wilcox, who was consulting medical advisor to the Home Office and physician at St. Mary's Hospital in London, obliged. And he said, Lesbianism is well known to have a debasing effect on those practicing it, which is mental, moral and physical. It leads to gross mental illness, nervous instability, and in some cases to suicides. This book must be banned or there will be a public health epidemic, he said. So The Well of Loneliness was banned and never reappeared during Radcliffe Hall's lifetime. My point with this example is that what is accepted as undoubted knowledge in one era may well be regarded as the OTO's prejudice of the next. And we no longer chemically castrate those who have been um, accused and convicted of the so-called crime of homosexuality. Um, We no longer believe in phlogiston or miasma or the theory of the ether. All these theories have risen and fallen. And we no longer advocate bloodletting, if you're feeling a little peaky, as you may after this debate, when you've survived the elements. So scientists also rise and fall. Alas, they are mortal. They stand within a limited perspective. Um, And even their own brilliant theories are suppressed by their societies. We think of Galileo, Wegener, Ignat Semmelweis, all of these scientists who struggled with a new theory against prevailing cultural assumptions. Um, So Richard Feynman, a keen scientist, always advocated on the the idea of doubt as a dynamic property in science, and I'd like to maintain that position. Thank you.
2: So you're recommending doubt?
3: It's sort of dynamic doubt of of all positions, yes.
2: (laughs) So on a Sunday morning, I'm gonna respond just with Pascal's famous, you can only wager that there is a God at the end of history. Your view is you can yep. only okay. wager that science
4: has an ultimate meaning. Peter? Well, I want you to think of a spectrum of knowledge. In the, um, the far infrared, where there, where there is more heat than light, there lies theology. Theology is founded on the absence of evidence. It refuses to accept that it can be wrong and it consists of a mosaic of ideas that where they interact they tend to lead to warfare as science is based on evidence it can be wrong it can be doubted as joanna just said and that is its power and it also consists of a mosaic of ideas but the mosaic of ideas uh, where they interact are mutually supportive, so it is quite different from the domain of knowledge we refer to as religion. I think religion is a a social construct, so if we are looking for social constructs, rather than in science, we should look for it in religion. Science is not a social construct. I mean, aeroplanes fly, mobile phones phone sometimes, and um, we um, we should not suddenly agree that only things that are orange should fly, and so everything other than EasyJet falls out of the sky. I mean, the theories are well founded, and they are based on a particular language. And I think humanity should be proud that it has found a simple way of discovering truth, namely to base it upon evidence. And secondly, to embed every idea in a reticulation of ideas so that one idea feeds into another. If you think about cosmology, you need fundamental particles. It's physics in order to help you. If you think about biology, these days you need chemistry, you need physics. It's a mutually supportive mosaic of ideas. And I think that is a sign that it is on the way to truth.
5: It's Peter, Tim. Uh, thanks very much. So uh, there's a sense in which, I mean, going back to this question that, that, that Joanna mentioned at the beginning, is science just a human description of the world limited by language, culture, and our particular circumstances? I mean, of course, science consists in a series of human descriptions. Science is done by humans. It's not primarily done by dogs or, or, or cats or centipedes. It is, in that sense, a human construction. And of course, it's also limited by the particularities of our circumstances, including the knowledge that past generations have given to us. So there are moments in time when scientists' instruments are better than they were at earlier points in time, and because of that cultural fact, scientists are able to better discover things as time goes by. We shouldn't oppose the notion that science is constructed by socially interacting groups of humans with the notion that science can also get at the truth. There are also plenty of perfectly straightforward ways in which culture affects the content of science. Most obviously, culture affects what it is that scientists end up working on. It's clearly not a coincidence that a very large proportion of research in uh, in pharmacology, for example, is dedicated towards examining diseases of the wealthy. It's clearly not a coincidence that very large numbers of scientists right now are working on climate change. The question of what it is that scientists are working on manifestly has has a cultural aspect to it. I, I also think we can go further. There are, of course, various, often rather notorious episodes where cultural influence has negatively affected how science works, Probably the most widely cited example of that would be the fate of research in genetics during Soviet Russia. It basically became more or less impossible uh, to do mainstream uh, Mendelian research during that period because that Mendelian research was viewed as not being Marxist enough. So there are all kinds of ways in which cultural influence affects the content of science. Now you might still say, okay, but cultural influence is always bad. It's always somehow undermining the content of science. I think we need to think that through very carefully. So going back to the case of Darwin, for example, Darwin was very wealthy, Uh, and he wasn't wealthy primarily because his books did well. Of course, they did do very well, but that wasn't the primary thing that was bringing in money for Darwin. What was bringing in money for Darwin is that he was effectively running a large private bank he was lending money and investing money very heavily in railways in canals in agricultural land and so forth. And it's then not a coincidence, I think, that when Darwin formulates his theory of evolution by natural selection, that theory is also, as Marx himself noticed, absolutely steeped in the language of capitalism. There's a continual set of references to division of labor, to ecological niches favoring increasing specialization. And this partly derives from Darwin's own reading of people like Adam Smith earlier on. Darwin's theorizing is culturally influenced, I think. But I don't think it follows for a minute that this means that we should regard Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection as unreliable. The take-home then is, yes, science is a cultural institution. Yes, there's a perfectly reasonable sense in which science is a social construct, but I don't think that should mean that we should be skeptical of whether it's also frequently true.
2: Truth. Um, Peter used the term ultimate truth. Tim used the word truth, scientific truth, numerous times. So, Joanna, as the culturalist on this panel, I want you, if you would initially at least, to respond to what truth you think science can provide. Because after all, if we keep boiling water, it does, as it were, differentiate itself replicably into the same H2O as my chemistry uh, O-level remembers. So there are certain truths of science. Where are the problems, do you think?
3: Well, I mean, so the the first thing, you know, what are we meaning when we talk about truth? I mean, fundamentally. So do we mean the old English term true, meaning faithful adhering to promises? Do we mean the kind of meaning that develops that we would probably understand relating to facts, you know, which comes in 13th century onwards? You know, what are we talking about? Do we mean eternal truth, something that can never be doubted, of which we can be absolutely certain? This is an enormously complex term. And I think I was um, talking about this with John Ellis, who's a brilliant CERN physicist and cosmologist. And he was asked the question, why does the world exist? To which he pri- replied, how the bloody hell should I know? Which I thought you know, was a perfectly rational response to this question. I mean, he advances the Big Bang theory, which has been a fantastically successful theory within science of how the universe might exist. But this question of why, this truth of why, this anterior question of, you know, what are we doing? Who are we? Who are these people that are contemplating the universe? These are massively indeterminate further questions, I'd say.
4: But there is no valid question that begins with why. If every valid question begins with how, and questions that begin with why. Why is that, Peter?
3: how is that does it not, come
4: you mean that how does it limit. How why, do, that's limit. Why, why should you how, exclude why as a category of interrogation? Because, because they are extrapolations of of human experience. And they cloud the issue. So you ask questions, why are we here? It's simply an extrapolation of of, of human anxiety. Um uh, So what do we
2: mean? What do I mean in the 70, 80 years of my life? It's not an anxiety. It's something everyone has to grapple with every day.
4: don't confuse the question. Um, What you've got to do is that that science approaches absolute truth by replacing all why questions with how questions. And there is no valid why question. In science? Anywhere. Um, it, it
3: but that's a huge limit. I mean, that's your prerogative as a scientist. You place a limit, but we're discussing limits. Do you believe so that's that? A limit. What's,
4: what's, wrong with, what's wrong with taking limits? I mean, if you're, limits are clarifications.
3: Right.
5: I'm not. Quite yes. Sure what, no is the answer to that. I'm not quite sure what Peter means when he says there are no valid why questions. On the face of it, one can say, you know, why is it that? Uh, that water expands when it freezes no
4: you then replace <laughs> that by how is it that on the basis of the molecular structure of water it expands when it freezes Not uh, what, and you see a mean, very different no, content there is, there to the why no, version there, versus the how
5: version it seems to me these are just variants the, on exactly the same there version. is no
4: purpose in water there is only properties of water and I think by extrapolation there is no purpose in us uh, there was only, how do we come to be in this particular position? No,
2: there may not be any purpose in us as a species, but each of us, we have to make sense of our own lives, as Wittgenstein said. It's yeah, not okay. something... But
4: how do we make sense of our own lives? No, it's not the same as being why. Sh- do we take? Nate?
3: Um, what about the, I mean, so we're raising a question of limits in language and that's a very interesting question and these questions of obviously we relay science using a human system of language which has limits attached, you know, we're, expressing ourselves within a language we don't even know the origins of, in fact. We can't get back to the original Ur language with which we began. So the the, the kind of notion that language isn't an enormous area of uncertainty. And I wanted to ask you, Peter, about the Big Bang. So this is a metaphor, as of course you'll know and the audience will know, it's not originally called the Big Bang. Georges Lemaitre, who originates the theory in the 20s, refers to a cosmic egg cracking open. Um, This is a metaphor that goes back to ancient Egyptians, ancient Greeks, Orphic eggs, world eggs. It's an incredibly ancient mythical metaphor but and then Fred Hoyle detracts and says, well, let's call it the Big Bang instead. Words, this words, words, words. <laughs> um, but it isn't I'm sorry words. you're
4: using them, Peter. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm using them because they confuse the issue. Um, <laughs> so what would one do if they didn't confuse use the issue? Math- We only use, have words. Use mathematics. <laughs> I mean, mathematics is the core, the root, the foundation of our description of nature. Tim?
5: I think one of the problems in this debate is I don't think it's very helpful to oppose, on the one hand, the notion of uh, science as, as, as as a pure construct versus, on the other hand, the notion of ultimate truth. I don't think we need to put the word ultimate in there. I don't think we need to think about science as dealing in eternal truths. There are plenty of perfectly respectable scientists, evolutionary biologists, for example, who deal in what we might think of as temporary truths. They're interested in specific episodes in the evolution of species. They're interested in temporally limited uh, uh, episodes on, 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 on this planet. So uh, that notion of of, of a truth being eternal or the notion of a truth being ultimate is, I I think, a bit of a red herring. There are just lots of truths, and we can find out all kinds of things about natural
2: processes. You're
4: against plurality, Peter. I'm against everything. Yes, uh, no, no. Uh, (laughs) But I I think you have to distinguish between fundamental truth, uh, sorry, eternal truth, and ultimate truth. I mean, once we have got to the ultimate truth, it will be eternal because it will be the end of What are of the science. grounds
2: for thinking we will ever get to ultimate truth? Optimism. Optimism. And how would, me, uh, and how would we, science, we, use your science, language, science. how would we know that we get to an eternal truth,
4: to be, an ultimate truth? Because everything will hang together. Ah.
3: But what about people like Hawking? I mean, Hawking wrote The Grand Design with Mlodinov in 2010, effectively abandoning that quest for ultimate truth. And he said, let's have model dependent realism instead. And we accept we can never be absolutely certain.
4: Other people's opinions are irrelevant.
5: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? And there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level
2: irrelevant in what sense apart from you know being uh, um. deliberately <laughs> cussed about this which is fine well i was taught to be cussed yeah no no i'm sure you were brought up as i was brought up to be cussed
4: what was the question <laughs>
3: question if if he, even Stephen Hawking abandoned the quest for ultimate yeah, truth, yes, I mean, that's, it, it that's might be sort of move on from this and notion. And his
4: opinion dissolved in the face of progress. Uh, that's the trouble with opinions. They're soluble in, in just about everything. Well, then, let us... Uh, splendid, Peter. You've been very cooperative because we're going to
2: kind of... We're now going to look at the degree to which culture does shape science. Tim mentioned... Uh, uh, Darwin, and of course, one of the things that Darwin says is in, in his autobiography is that he read Malthus's essay on population, and Malthus's essay on population is precisely the survival of the fittest, the degree to which that helped to shape Darwin's own belief is an open question. But Tim, you set off by elaborating the degree to which science is both cultural, but that need not necessarily hinder its claim to truthfulness. Is that right?
5: Yeah, that's right. And not only does it not need to hinder it, it can actually facilitate it. Um, So, you know, were we uh, a species that evolved purely by the transmission of genes from one generation to another, we wouldn't have any science. The very fact that we have science is dependent on transmission of a body of information from from one generation to another. Science is done by humans. Humans have all kinds of psychological frailties. They have all kinds of biases. Scientists too. But the fact that science is socially instituted and socially organized allows criticism to emerge that can help to overcome some of those biases. So in many ways it's the example. cultural nature. Give me an example. So peer review is an example there. Uh, I, the general mode of scientific publishing which allows conjectures to be held up for scrutiny and, and refuted or debated over time. Uh, all of those are cultural uh, institutions. Giovanna.
3: I want to come back to language again. I mean, language is just fundamental to culture. So let's look at a massive metaphor that we have, which is Cartesian dualism, which a lot of science today still grapples with, mind versus body. And this question within consciousness, the debate around consciousness, which, you know, how can the apparent physical matter of the brain relate to this thing we feel to be immaterial somehow, consciousness? And how can we devise a theory based on this or which goes beyond this? And this goes back to Descartes' battle not to be censored by the church not to fully remove this dualistic idea that's fundamental to many religions of the mind as distinct from the body, the spirit as distinct from the flesh. So we have these enormous on running metaphors that, as Tim's saying, they can influence and predict actually, and you can get trapped in a metaphor quite easily and, and not be able to go beyond it because you're within it. It's part of your culture. It's so fundamental. So it's a huge struggle, I think, within science to, can as I, we all do. Can I ask you
2: a question? you make metaphors sound as if it's a limiter or a constriction, but it's also a liberation. Apache yes. what Peter's saying, language is our life, to quote Wittgenstein. Again, yeah. it is our way of making sense of the world. Without language, we are not.
3: Absolutely, and something like atoms, it's an incredibly important notion. You know, We all still use it, this ancient 6th you know, century notion, Democritus and Leucippus, devised of the tiny particles of the material world.
2: Let me ask you a question, Peter. Do you think culture is simply a hindrance to the mathematical progress towards ultimate truth that science is going to deliver us? Oh, in some countries, it can be. And in other cultures, not necessarily. No, Distinguish I, between the
4: two. Well, I, I, I think in our culture, Western culture, I, I, I think uh, it's, uh, it encourages progress. I, I think in, let's call it um, Asian cultures, it might well inhibit progress. What, what counts as progress <laughs> for you? Um, progressive m- motion
2: towards ultimate truth. You'll understand that that's circular. I
4: don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, <laughs> philosophy does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tim? But, but if, if I can just take up a, a point Tim made, I found it very interesting for, uh, when you were talking about Darwin's um, cultural, economic, socioeconomic influences. And it set me wondering about um, whether there's a distinction somewhere that people who studied the, um, the fundamental sciences were not multi- motivated in the same way. So think of Faraday, for example. Was he motivated by commercial influences? Was Maxwell? I mean, I don't know the answer to those.
5: Well, I, I mean, I think there's a, a fairly Clear sense in which again it's it's not a coincidence that there's a massive explosion in work in nuclear physics, just as nuclear physicists are working on massive explosions. Um, so you know the the war. But tell me about Faraday. I don't know enough about Brad- no. Faraday to tell you okay. about Faraday.
3: Could could I put in a shout for the exclusion of women from science historically? I mean, I feel it's a shame that I must mention this. But, um, you know, that obviously we have the Royal Society of Science. um, It's founded in 1660. Amazing members, you know, Christopher Wren, Hook, Halley, you know, etc. This, or Haley, these amazing kind of array of these uh, illustrious figures. And women are not permitted until 1945, So this is clearly a big disparity. We look at all the women who did not create scientific theories, were not encouraged, did not have careers. The same in the French Academy, the Russian Academy. Um, You have Marie Curie winning the Nobel Prize and being excluded from the French Academy the following year, her second Nobel Prize, I believe, in 1911. So, I mean, you have these vast gulfs, I think, um, that we may also consider, which are cultural, we assume
2: but do you think joanna that the entrance of women into science which has been going on now for a long time is likely to change the what we might call the intellectual framework of church science in the same way as for instance the memory that women actually shaped history has changed the discipline of history and historiography.
3: Oh, you mean do we have to now go back retrospectively yeah. and sort of no, find well, women would, who were practicing would, would science? Would science
4: be any different? <laughs> that's well, that's the question. It's a
3: totally hypothetical question. But obviously, if you remove 50% of your talent pool, there might of be more. Them.
4: There might be more, but would it be different? Yes. That's really the, the that's question. the, the question.
5: Well, I mean, again, I think if you look to the life sciences, because although I don't know about Faraday, I do know a bit about biology. Um, If if you look to the life life sciences, I think there's there's very good evidence that particularly work on things like the evolution of sex, work on sexual physiology as well. When that work was primarily conducted by men, there were a, a series of stereotypical assumptions brought to the understanding of sexuality that were then very well corrected later on, as more and more women became interested in working in, in evolutionary theory, what about, working in what about physiology. Phys-
4: what about physics? Would that apply to physics, do you think?
5: Uh, I'm not so sure. No. I'm I, not, mean, I mean, it's, it's, very clear, it's very clear how the biases work in the case of evolutionary theory, yeah. where we're often dealing with uh you know what what you might think of as um extremely um extremely sensitive issues um around around sex for example i admit it's it's less clear uh how the biases would work in the first place when one's thinking about nuclear physics for example
2: can i sorry carry on on,
3: i was going to say if you're starting with you know we've got thomas henry huxley um i'm going to quote him frs writes to his pal charles lyell frs Five out of six of women will stop in the dull stage of evolution to be the drag on civilization, the degradation of every important pursuit in which they mix themselves. I mean, that doesn't really sound like an encouraging environment, either for women to participate in science or for women to be assessed by this form of science you're discussing.
5: Yeah, no, I mean, Darwin too. Darwin thought it was just obvious that generally, women were you know, achieved far less and were just not really cut out for excellence. And, and he was able to you know, correspond with, with uh, you know, various Victorian friends of his in a way where they, they would just all assume that this was the case and it wasn't even subject to scrutiny.
2: I want to ask a question and I don't want to distract you, but I would, we've used the category of science as if its meaning and its range is self-evident. And yet, you know, we speak about uh, physics or chemistry or biology. Is the category of science actually a useful category, Tim? Because it itself is historical. The word science has a history. David Hume, for instance, in the 18th century, would have thought as science, or what we think of as science, as part of the humanities. In fact, he said so
5: i uh, I mean uh, yeah I'm a little bit skeptical about how useful this general category of science is not least because there are many many different kinds of science obviously we have physics chemistry biology but we also need to remember that there are, there are human and social sciences as well you know people studying um, people studying sociology often regard themselves as Scientists and they use mathematical apparatus there too. And there are you know, tricky demarcation questions. You know, why exactly is it inappropriate or would it be inappropriate to think of history as a science since, after all, historians too are interested in asking big important questions and trying to answer those by looking at evidence and, and, and by, by you know, investigating archives and by digging things out the ground. Are you a chemist or
4: a scientist, Pete? Well, I'm both. Um... Uh, I, I'm uh, I'm a scientist, sort of a kind of defunct scientist, um, and uh, the subset of science is chemistry. And, and I, what is I, science I, and, for you? And science is—I thought I explained that right at the beginning. It's um, it's a collection of interrelated ideas based on evidence. Uh, so history
2: is a science.
4: Um, since history is based Uh, 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 on evidence. Until you interrupted, I was going to go on to say um, that um, you have to distinguish the physical sciences from the biological sciences, and the physical sciences do not really include history. Uh, The biological sciences, I can see, might well, because you extend from pure biology through anthropology to psychology into into history so science in effect includes almost everything well science can explain everything silence (laughs) there is nothing there is nothing that the scientific method cannot touch and thereby elucidate the meaning of death even that
2: the meaning of death yes the meaning of death it can it can describe the physical nature, the meaning of death to a human being. You show me a scientist who's written about the meaning of death and but, I'll
4: read it. But, there, but the meaning of death is exactly what you just said. It's the cessation of organic activity. No, no, no. But you it watch somebody dying again, and that's not what he did. And
3: also that's highly cultural. not sentimental.
4: Mean I think, it's not sentimental. It is, it is. Forgive me,
2: watching somebody die and trying to make sense of their past life is not sentimental.
3: And also that, I mean, that's a highly cultural notion that the materialist idea, the physicalist view of the universe, that, you know, the the physical destruction of the body would be the end. I mean, that's a culturally specific notion. I mean, it's culturally specific historically within humanity, whether it's true or not. There's
4: no evidence for life after death. There is every evidence for the cessation of organic activity when a body stops Respiring. It It
0: certainly is. is. But I I wanted to turn, sorry, Sorry. do you want to go?
5: Yeah, I mean, if I can sort of yet again try and adopt a tediously middle of the road position. No, you were cast this way. uh, Between life and death. (laughs) I I mean, look. in in one sense, I think Peter's right. It's very hard to find a, a, a domain of inquiry where the sciences would have nothing to say, not least because the sciences themselves are so extraordinarily diverse. Having said that. I think there are also things that none of the sciences are particularly good at doing, certain forms of making sense that none of the sciences are particularly mean by making good at sense? doing. For example, glad you asked.
2: <laughs> I'm glad for you exa- don't interrupt, Peter. Go for on. Exa- <laughs> so,
5: so, so, for example, if what you want to know is a kind of empathic engagement with how it would feel to be with someone while they're dying, if that's not something that you've been through before. Of course, the sciences can tell us a lot of, about the facts involved there, but they don't necessarily give us the best way into empathic engagement, and that's where I think literature can be very important too.
3: But there's, so there's two things I'd like to raise. One is um, so this idea of if we replace truth with reality, so reality is another word that is sometimes um, you know, used uh, interchangeably, and you know, if you have a notion that anything that is thought or felt or believed in the totality of human experience is part of human reality, then fantasy is part of human reality, philosophically. Then strange beliefs that Peter would not agree with are part of reality. It's all part of the totality and has been at various points believed. You can then... Take among that for the theory that you most subscribe to. And you can prove aspects of it with empirical evidence. This person is definitely dead, as we understand this, to mean their body has stopped functioning. Um, that was the first thing. The second thing was, um, was a, I think, mentioning of Eastern traditions. So we have this strange notion, historically, which is that you know I'm here and everything else is over there. And there's a big separating divide. And I don't need to inquire into myself. I can look at the stuff that's there, the kind of matter and I can analyze it. And I don't analyze what the hell's happening as I analyze it. I just focus on the stuff. And this is, again, quite culturally specific. And if you look at Eastern philosophical traditions, there's the knower and the field and the field and the Noah are the same. You know, they're absolutely interchangeable. So again, we're in the fact we're having this conversation in this way is quite culturally specific.
4: Well, I think um <laughs> Uh, what am I going to say? I think if I were watching someone die, I would like to be put into an MRI tube so so that people could monitor my brain activity. I would like someone to monitor my the flow of hormones as i I wept um, i I think the kind of question you you raise is open to scientific investigation, not just sentimental reflection, which is I think your mode. Why is reflection sentimental?
2: After all, the whole of literature... Let's take another example. Let's take the, no, uh, the film Spartacus, which you must have seen. There's a moment in which uh, all the slaves get up and say, I am Spartacus. This is an act of solidarity, you know, which is historically extraordinarily important. What does science have to say about such
4: acts of solidarity? Ask a psychologist.
2: Uh, now,
4: I mean, that's the kind of it's thing. It's a collective, just, so just, you ask a
2: sociologist.
4: You know, uh, uh, well, and, and you also ask a sociologist. Um, you ask why some people have profound religious faith. And you should ask a psychologist. I mean, it is open to scientific investigation. And forgive me, that's different from thinking you can get to the
2: ultimate truth about these things. Of no, course, what, everything what t- is open to scientific investigation. It's e-
4: everything is open to scientific investigation. Everything is open to investigation that is based upon evidence. Once you start diverting, diverging from evidence, you get into a morass of, um, of the unknown. To true belief, could I thank the panel? Entirely thank you.
1: so much for listening to Philosophy for Our Times. I'm Anna from the Institute of Art and Ideas. And if you like what you heard, then please do subscribe, give us a rating and tell everyone you know about the podcast. And of course, join us next week for an aptly timed Valentine's Day special, where we'll be debating whether we should stop seeing romantic love as all important. To do so, we'll be joined by psychologist and author of Singled Out, Bella de Paula. Oxford transhumanist Anders Sandberg and romance author Heidi Rice.